0: The hag is astride, this night for to ride, The devil and she together, together. through thick and through thin, Now out, and then in. in, though ne'er so foul be the weather. A thorn or a burr she takes for a spur, With a lash of a bramble she rides now. Through brakes and through briars, or ditches and mires, She follows the spirit that guides now. No beast for his food dares now range the wood, But hushed in his lair he lies lurking, while mischiefs by these on land and on seas at noon of night are working. The storm will arise and trouble the skies, the night and more for the wonder. The ghost from the tomb affrighted shall come, called out by the clap of the thunder. The Hag by Robert Herrick.
1: all you guys and gals out there in the haunted hinterlands as always it's rock and i'm here with my co-host max and we're going to be your guides as you go from door to door trading tricks for treats
0: (laughs) here at nightmares and daydreams welcome lovely people rock and i are going to discuss and debate our way through all things paranormal legendary and monstrous and of course fun definitely fun but max do you want to know what's
1: not fun what's that rock nothing Every damn thing about Halloween is the best. The costumes, the candy, the parties, all that. Simply the best. Well played, my good sir, well played. Tis the season, lovely listeners, the season of wicked witches, ghastly ghouls, scary skeletons. Unabating alliteration. Come on, Max, you gotta give me something. Join in the fun. Macabre mummies. There you
0: go, that's (laughs) what I'm talking about. Tonight, dear listeners... We're well immersed in the spirit of the holiday we've come to know as Halloween. Indeed, we're going to try to go all the way back and find some of the roots of the holiday and traditions we all know and love so well. Including the scariest of Halloween traditions
1: bubblegum. Worse than that, Max, candy corn. A truly horrible invention. <laughs> Good heavens. <laughs> <laughs> Simply diabolical. Only dentists. Like candy corn, Max. Truth. They send their kids to college repairing (laughs) all the damage that gnarly confection has wrought on our society. No doubt. But let's focus, right? Back to business. So, let's start at the beginning. Always a good place to start. So, how old is Halloween? Well, it depends on what you mean. The word Halloween itself dates to the mid-18th century, around 1745, and it stood for the Evening Before All Hallows, the Feast of All Saints. I'd love me some feasts, Max. It's <laughs> a damn good thing Thanksgiving is around the corner.
0: Okay, but when the word originated in Christian culture, I'm assuming it meant something quite different from the holiday we know and love. Exactly, it involved going to mass and all that, dressing up in your Sunday best and wishing you were still asleep. <laughs> if we kid people, we jest. But ancient pagan rituals, pertaining to the harvest and honoring ancestors and whatnot, were already in place.
1: Yeah, okay, just to be clear, Pope Gregory the Fourth in the 8th century made November 1 a universal all-saints festival throughout the church. So
0: the Christian holiday existed for, say, a thousand years or so before mm-hmm. the anglicized form of the holiday was contracted into the form we now use, Halloween. Exactly, exactly. As you say, people were practicing their
1: local ancient traditions as well. You know, burning wicker men and dressing up like Captain America,
0: <laughs> those sort of things. And it seems like Or at least the common wisdom is that it's the Celtic traditions primarily, I mean, though of course there's no such thing as universal Celtic traditions, Mm -hmm. that largely combined with the Christian holiday to make what we now think of as Halloween. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think that sounds right. But what traditions are you
0: specifically thinking of? Well, Celtic festivals that happen at the same time as our Halloween, like the Gaelic Samhain. Somhain, you mean, Max? <laughs> Sorry. We
1: dare not bring the great Danzig's wrath down upon us. November coming fire is still the jam.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> or Colin in Wales, Colin Guan in Cornwall. Mm, corn. Colin <laughs> Guan in Brittany, and the unlikely name of Hoptunai Tunai on the Isle of Man. These festivals were harvest festivals, including activities like bobbing for apples, carving of turnips into jack-o'-lanterns. Yeah, there's no pumpkins in the old world. Uh,
1: No Texas barbecue neither, so obviously it was a very sad place. But they did have turnips, so good for them. Also, putting apples under your pillow was believed to induce dreams of a future spouse. The only thing that you got was a crick in your neck if you put apples under your pillows. Probably true. But, you know, Max, in all seriousness, that seems to be a thing, right, viewing your future spouse. Going back to our Spirits of Christmas episode last year, a small Polish rite that involved pouring hot candle wax through a keyhole into a basin of cold water apparently gave you that glimpse of your future mate. You were just hoping they were attractive. Or at least, not hideous. Magic was believed to be powerful at this time of year. Halloween is at a time when the veil between worlds was thin which is why the dead could cross, for good or ill. Dia de los Muertos in the beginning of November is a time of honoring ancestors in Mexico, of course, and these sorts of gravesite visits happened all around the world. But others could cross too, unasked and unhoped for. It was believed that souls of a less generous nature might slip across to terrorize those caught out at an inappropriate hour. (laughs) I I like that, less generous nature. I know, right? Or we could just go with the cliché evil spirits.
0: You know, in terms of Dia de los Muertos, let's give a shout-out to Miguel in the Pixar movie Coco. Love it. Don't forget to honor all your ancestors and elders, kids. Yep. Good behavior is the best way to ward off evil spirits. So, put those pictures on the ofrenda and leave out some
1: nice snacks. As long as you don't eat those snacks, kids, those are for the ancestors. You know, Max and Miguel just wanted to play music like his father before him. It was a good boy who had a fever. And the only prescription was more cowbell. I mean, <laughs> guitar. <laughs> All
0: right, let's get back to Sáwan and the Celtic traditions. Maybe let's tell an Irish story. I have a good one. Irish stories are kind of my jam. And of course, I'll be reading it in my
1: best Irish brogue. <laughs> Please don't. On Samhain night... The court of Ailil and Mave were feasting in celebration of the festival. There was much drinking, and all were in good spirits. Since it was Sowen, Ailil offered a reward for any who completed a frightening dare. Any man who could tie a willow branch around the ankle of either of two hanged corpses would receive a gold-hilted sword. Some tried, but they all hurried back, saying the night was full of ghosts. For, on Samhain, the doors between this world and the next lie open. But young Nera was determined to win the sword no matter what lurked out in the night. He braved the dark and came to the gallows, where he tried twice to tie the willow branch around the first corpse's ankle. The willow branch, while being pliable, was also very springy, and so kept snapping back and would not stay attached to the ankle. Nera began to worry about the creatures of the night and was getting more terrified by the moment when he heard a voice above him. ''Pin it to my ankle,'' the corpse said, looking down at him, its mouth a wide grin. But it was Sawan night, so Nera just obeyed and managed to secure the switch to its ankle, completing his king's task. ''Thank you,'' Nera said to the corpse. The corpse, still looking down, made a request. I was very thirsty when I was hanged. To repay me, take me to get a drink." Nera nodded, and the corpse dropped down and embraced Nera's neck with its legs firmly around Nera's waist so it would not be shaken off. Committed to his grim task, Nera began walking. Eventually they came upon a home that was surrounded by a lake of flames. They must have dampened the fire as they were supposed to, the corpse moaned. We cannot enter. The second house they came to was surrounded by a lake of water. They must have thrown out the foot washing water, the corpse hissed. We cannot enter. The third house had no barrier though, and they entered. The family slept as they came in. In the kitchen they found three buckets of water. Quite thirsty, the corpse drank the first two. From the third it took a mouthful and spit the water in the faces of the sleeping family. As Nera watched, disease spread over their bodies, stealing along their veins, turning their skin first pale, then dark with rot. Satisfied, the corpse was taken back to the gallows by Nera, where it clambered up and reattached the noose, once again lifeless. As Nera made his way back to the festival, he saw the light of flames in front of him. He ran toward it and beheld a large host attacking his people, killing them. He followed from a safe distance as the invading army returned to their domain, the mound of Kruan Khan, where the army filed into a cave one by one. He overheard the passphrase, there is a human on the path, and the response, the road is surely heavier for it. So Nera, pretending to be part of the host, used the phrase to enter the mound. Realizing he had followed a Shi army down into the other world, Nira attempted to sneak around, wondering how he would escape, but was quickly surrounded by guards and their king. But rather than being angry, the king of the she was impressed by Nira's bravery. Nira's punishment was to serve a Shi woman every day and to be her consort. Nira worked hard at his task and he grew to love the fairy woman, who in turn fell in love with him. Every day, as he was getting firewood, he noticed a blind man and a lame man, one carried on the back of the other, going to the well in the center of the king's realm. Here they would always comment, Is it there? And yes, it's there. Nira eventually worked up the courage to ask what they spoke of, and they stated the king's golden crown was in the well, and they had to check on it every day. As is often the case in fairy, hours seemed days and days hours and Nira felt he had been in the other world for months. During this time, Nera's wife asked him about his life and how he ended up with her. Hearing his tale, she told him that the invasion had not happened yet, but rather would on the following Samhain night. She said she was pregnant with his child and told him how to escape and how he could convince his people to prepare so they would be able to repel the Shi warriors when they did arrive. As long as he promised to come back and keep her and their child safe. She told him that contrary to his belief, in his world, he had only been gone a few hours. All he needed to do was take the blooms and plants in the other world to show his king and queen that he had been somewhere where spring had come, very different from the autumn time that was occurring in the human world. He followed his wife's advice and stole out of the mound a golden primrose flower. He returned to the campfires and spoke to Ailil and Maeve, who believed his story. They not only prepared for the attack, but decided to attack the Shi realm itself. The following Samhain, they entered the mound and defeated their enemies and took the golden crown. Aileo had given Nera a little extra time, which he used to take his wife and son to safety. Along with his family, he also took a magnificent bull calf. But that is a story for another day. You know, he was really lucky to escape ferry. Yeah, rare is the tow that involves a trip to the other world that ends up happily ever after. You tend to come back with all your friends and loved ones long buried, and you a stranger in a strange land. So, eventually, the Americans came along
0: and took this holiday and ran with it. That's how we do, Max. We Americans make everything bigger,
1: bigger brighter, brighter, brighter,
0: brighter, brighter, more commercialized.
1: <laughs> True. But, you know, I think in the case of Halloween, we mostly improved upon it. Back in my day,
0: we would just wait out in the pumpkin patch for the great pumpkin.
1: Yeah, you and your blue security blanket. I'm just not sure I'd have the patience for that. Plus, weren't no pumpkin patches available in South Texas to stand around in. (laughs) True.
0: But on a more serious note, I do think, in this instance, Americans have indeed improved the holiday overall, or at least given it the importance it deserves on the calendar. Totally agree. But what exactly did
1: Americans do to the holiday, just so our lovely audience knows? You know, besides commercializing
0: it. Originally, Americans weren't much into Halloween, or whatever it was called then. Puritans didn't celebrate holidays much, even Christmas. I don't imagine they celebrated a whole lot though,
1: right? Can be and joy and whatnot, got fields to till and tri-corner hats to wear. <laughs>
0: Joy leads to frivolity. Frivolity leads to dancing. Dancing leads to the dark side. Dark side has
1: the cooler powers, Max. Ask Vader. Force lightning is hard to beat. True.
0: Okay, so it wasn't until the Scots and Irish started immigrating in the 19th century, bringing their wonderful traditions with them, that the holiday really took off here, at least in their ethnic communities. And then by the early 20th century, pretty much everybody was celebrating it. Well, if
1: anybody knows how to party, it's the Irish. Am I right? So let's talk about some of the specifics, like jack-o'-lanterns. I mean, we talked earlier about how they were even made back in the old country out of turnips and other root vegetables. I'm assuming they served a purpose, like to scare away bad spirits and whatnot, like uh, gargoyles or chupacabras, for instance.
0: (laughs) I think so. In fact, there's a story about this, actually, where it came from and what its purpose is. All right, that's what we're here for. Drop the knowledge. Centuries ago in Ireland, there lived a drunkard and layabout known as Stingy Jack. Jack had a reputation as a deceiver, manipulator, complete drag of society. Satan heard rumors of Jack's evil deeds and silver tongue. Unconvinced, and to be honest, a little envious of the rumors, the devil went up to discover whether Jack lived up to his vile reputation. As it happens, Jack was drunk and wandering through the countryside the night when he came upon a body on the cobblestone path. The body, with an eerie grimace on its face, turned out to be Satan. Jack, sobering up rather quickly, realized this was the end of his life of adventure. Satan had finally come to collect his tarnished soul. So Jack made a last request. He asked Satan to let him drink some ale before he departed for hell. Finding no reason not to acquiesce to the request, Satan took Jack to the local pub and supplied him with drink. Upon quenching his thirst, Jack asked Satan to pay the tab on the ale, much to Satan's surprise. Jack convinced Satan to transform into a silver coin with which to pay the bartender, and Satan did so impressed and amused by Jack's devious wiles. Jack, with a cunning grin, stuck the transformed Satan into his pocket which also contained his rosary and crucifix. And the crucifix's presence kept Satan from escaping his form. So Satan was compelled to agree to Jack's next demand. In exchange for Satan's freedom, he had to spare Jack's soul for 10 more years. Well, 10 years later, from the very day Jack originally struck his deal, he found himself once again in Satan's presence. Jack happened upon Satan in the same manner as before and seemingly accepted that this time was indeed his time to go to hell for good. But as the Lord of Darkness prepared to take him to hell, Jack asked if Satan could retrieve him one apple to feed his starving belly. Foolishly, Satan once again agreed to his deathbed request. As Satan climbed up the branches of a nearby apple tree, Jack surrounded the roots and base of the trunk with crucifixes satan furious that he'd been trapped again demanded his release but as before jack made a demand that his soul never be taken by satan into hell and as the first rays of dawn began to peek over the horizon satan finally caved in and agreed and was set free eventually the drinking took its toll on jack's liver and he died he was prepared to enter heaven through the gates of saint peter but was stopped and told by God that because of his sinful lifestyle of deceitfulness and drinking, he was not allowed into heaven. So, resignedly, Jack went down to the gates of hell and sought admission into the underworld. But Satan, bound by his oath to Jack, could not take his soul. Instead, to warn others, he gave Jack an ember, marking him as a denizen of the netherworld. And from that day on, until eternity's end, Jack is doomed to roam the world between the planes of good and evil, with only an ember inside a hollow turnip to light his way.
1: So, that story makes it seem more like a warning
0: to humans to live a good life than anything. Yeah, I guess so. I would have thought the scary faces on jack o would serve as a protection from evil spirits as well, though. Live and learn, baby. Well, hopefully anyway. Live and learn, people. Yeah, right. I doubt we will. (laughs) Exactly. Probably not. Become better souls so you don't get stuck in limbo like clever but ultimately doomed Jack. Poor Jack. Jack of the lantern. Indeed.
1: So what about trick-or-treating? Dressing up as monsters and going door-to-door to to, uh, beg for candy?
0: Well, supposedly it's connected to a practice from medieval Europe, but especially in England, called souling where groups of people would go parish to parish, knocking on doors of well-to-do parishioners and begging for soul cakes. In exchange, they promised to pray for the giver's friends and family. Souling, that's kind of a cool name. And yeah, I've
1: heard of that tradition. There's another tradition from Gaelic countries like Scotland and Ireland called guising, where kids dress up and go door to door carrying turnip lanterns. Old Jet. Exactly. And the kids beg at each house for fruit and cakes and money, you know, because they're carrying a turnip and you're going to feel sorry for them. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, fruit, cakes and money. I mean, those are all good things, right? Indeed. And it does sound a lot like our own trick-or-treating. Yeah, trick-or-treating. It was first recorded in North America
0: in 1911. That timeline sounds right, compared to what we talked about before.
1: Yep. So do you think the tradition of trick-or-treating will continue in post-pandemic Halloween
0: 2020 style? I think so. Mm -hmm. Well, and hope so. It's such a great tradition. And let's be honest, it made it through previous pandemics. Ah, too true. Trick-or-treating survived the Spanish
1: flu and two world wars. Plus, now's the time for everyone to wear masks
0: anyway. I love it when the kids come trick-or-treating. A lot more superheroes these days, but we still get some traditional witches and monsters. Well, you know, Iron Man is pretty
1: scary to the more fey evil spirits. (laughs) True. Iron being a repellent to the fair folk. And I like that the Solars or Geysers had turnip lanterns. Though I gotta think they can't give out a whole lot of light, right? Speaking of jack-o'-lanterns, I have a really good story for Halloween. Well, I wasn't really talking about jack-o'-lanterns, but, you know... (laughs) Turn up lanterns, the same thing.
0: Turn up lanterns?
1: Well, I hope it has turnips at least.
0: Well, pumpkins, but you can't have everything. In a cove of the eastern shore of the Hudson, there is a little valley, which is one of the quietest places in the whole world. From the listless repose of the place and the character of its inhabitants, This glen has long been known by the name of Sleepy Hollow. Certainly, it continues under the sway of some witching power that holds a spell over the minds of the people, causing them to walk in a continual reverie. They are given to all kinds of marvelous beliefs, are subject to trances and visions, and frequently see strange sights and hear music and voices in the air. The whole neighborhood abounds with local tales, haunted spots, and twilight superstitions. The dominant spirit that haunts this enchanted region is the apparition of a figure on horseback without a head. It is said by some to be the ghost of a Hessian trooper whose head had been carried away by a cannonball during the Revolutionary War and seen hurrying along in the gloom of night as if on the wings of the wind. His haunts extend to the vicinity of a church at no great distance. Indeed, certain historians of those parts alleged that the body of the trooper having been buried in the churchyard, the ghost rides forth in the scene of battle on nightly quest of his head, and that the rushing speed with which he sometimes passes along the hollow like a midnight blast is owing to his being belated and in a hurry to get back to the churchyard before daybreak. And the specter is known at all the country firesides by the name of the Headless Horseman of Sleepy Hollow. In this town, their abode in a remote period of American history, Ichabod Crane, the schoolmaster in Sleepy Hollow. And the name of Crane was not inappropriate, for he was tall and lanky, with narrow shoulders, long arms, and legs. To see him striding along the profile of a hill on a windy day with his baggy clothes fluttering about him evoked a scarecrow escape from a cornfield. He liked, after his school in the afternoon, to read direful tales, until the gathering of dusk in the evening when, as he wended his way home, every sound of nature at that witching hour fluttered his exciting imagination. He would also pass long winter evenings with the old Dutch wives as they sat spinning by the fire with a row of apples roasting and spluttering along the hearth. Listen to their marvelous tales of ghosts and goblins and haunted fields and haunted brooks and haunted bridges and haunted houses and particularly of the headless horsemen or Galloping Hessian of the hollow, as they sometimes called him. But if there was a pleasure in this while snugly in the corner of a chamber that was ruddy with the glow of the crackling wood fire, it was dearly paid for by the terrors of his subsequent walk homewards. In his mind, fearful shapes and shadows beset his path amidst the dim and ghastly glare of snowy night, appalled by some shrub covered with snow like a cheated specter and shrinking at the sound of his own steps, He dreaded to look over his own shoulder, lest he should behold some being tramping close behind him, or thrown into complete dismay by some wind howling among the trees in the idea that it was the galloping Hessian on one of his nightly hauntings. All these, however, were mere terrors of the night, phantoms of the mind that walk in darkness, and he would have passed a pleasant life of it if his path had not been crossed by a certain woman. Among his musical students was Katrina van Tassel, the daughter and heir of a substantial Dutch farmer. She was beautiful and crane, love-struck, would daydream of his life with her on a farm and a wagon load of kids. But Ichabod had a host of adversaries of real flesh and blood, men who also admired the young woman. Among these, the most formidable was a burly young man, Brahm van Brunt, the hero of the country round. He was broad-shouldered, with short, curly black hair. From his Herculean frame and great strength he received the nickname Bram Bones, by which he was universally known. He was always ready for either a fight or a frolic, but had more mischief than ill will in his composition. From the moment Ichabod made his advances, he became the object of whimsical persecution to Bones and his gang of rough riders. They harried his hitherto peaceful domains, smoked out his singing school by stopping up the chimney, broke into the schoolhouse at night and turned everything topsy-turvy so that the poor schoolmaster began to think all the witches in the country held their meetings there. On a fine autumnal evening, there was a party at the Van Tassels farm and Ichabod, having been invited along with the rest of the town, of course attended. Ichabod prided himself upon his dancing as much as upon his vocal powers. Katrina was his partner in the dance, and smiling graciously in reply to all his amorous oglings, while Brom Bones, sorely smitten with love and jealousy, sat brooding by himself in a corner. When the dance was at an end, Ichabod was attracted to a knot of folks who sat at one end of the piazza, gossiping and drawing out long stories about ghosts and apparitions. The chief part of the stories, however, turned upon the favorite specter of Sleepy Hollow, the headless horseman, who had been heard several times of late patrolling the country, and it was said tethered his horse nightly among the graves in the churchyard. Brom Bones made light of the horseman, He said, returning one night from the neighboring village, he was overtaken by it, and that he had offered to race with him for a bowl of punch. should have won it, too. But just as they came to the church bridge, the Hessian bolted and vanished in a flash of fire. The revel gradually broke up. It was the very witching time of night that Ichabod, heavy-hearted and crestfallen, pursued his travels homewards. The night grew darker and darker, The stars seemed to sink deeper in the sky, and driving clouds occasionally hid them from his sight. On his old horse, he was approaching the very place where many of the scenes of the ghost stories had been laid. In the center of the road stood an enormous tulip tree, which towered like a giant above all the other trees of the neighborhood, and formed a kind of landmark. As Ichabod approached the fearful tree, he began to whistle. He thought his whistle was answered. It was but a blast sweeping sharply through the dry branches. As he approached a little nearer, he thought he saw something white hanging in the midst of the tree. He paused and ceased whistling, but, on looking more narrowly, perceived that it was a place where the tree had been scathed by lightning and the white wood lay bare. Suddenly, he heard a groan. His teeth chattered and his knees smote against the saddle. It was but the rubbing of a huge bough upon another as they swayed about in the breeze. About 200 yards from the tree, a small brook crossed the road and ran into the swamp. A few rough logs laid side by side served for a bridge. As he approached the stream, his heart began to thump. He summoned up all his resolution, urged his horse on, and attempted to dash briskly across the bridge but instead of starting forward, it plunged to the opposite side of the road into a thicket of brambles and alder bushes. Just at this moment, in the dark of the grove, on the margin of the brook, he beheld something huge and misshapen. It didn't move, but lurked like some gigantic monster ready to spring. The hair of the affrighted pedagogue rose upon his head with terror. Who who, who are you? he demanded. He received no reply. He repeated his demand in a still more agitated voice still there was no answer then the shadowy thing with a bound stood at once in the middle of the road Though the night was dark and dismal yet the form could now be determined it appeared to be a large horseman mounted on a powerful black horse ichabod quickened his steed but the stranger quickened his horse to match his pace his heart began to sink within him his parched tongue clove to the roof of his mouth Its silence was soon fearfully accounted for. On mounting a rise in the road, which brought the figure of the horseman into relief against the sky, Ichabod was horror-struck on perceiving that he was headless, but his horror was still more increased on observing that the head, which should have rested on his shoulders, was carried before him on the pommel of his saddle. His terror rose to desperation. He rained a shower of kicks and blows upon his horse, hoping by a sudden movement to give it the slip. But the specter started full jump with him. Away then they dashed, stones flying and sparks flashing at every bound. Crane plunged headlong down the hill, where the road crosses the bridge to the whitewashed church. If I can but reach that bridge, thought Ichabod, I am safe. But he heard the black steed panting and blowing behind him. He felt its hot breath. Another convulsive kick in the ribs, and his old steed sprang upon the bridge. He thundered over the resounding planks. He gained the opposite side, and now Ichabod cast a look behind to see if his pursuer should vanish, according to the rule, in a flash of fire and brimstone. Instead, he saw the horseman rising in his stirrups, and in the very act of hurling his head at him. Ichabod endeavored to dodge the horrible missile, but too late. It encountered his cranium with a tremendous crash. He was tumbled headlong into the dust, and the black steed and the goblin rider passed by like a whirlwind. The next morning, the old horse was found, soberly cropping the grass at his master's gate. The tracks of horses' hooves deeply dented the road, and evidently at furious speed, were traced back to the bridge. Beyond which, on the bank of a broad part of the brook, where the water ran deep and black, was found the hat of the unfortunate Ichabod, and close beside it, a shattered pumpkin. The brook was searched, but the body of the schoolmaster was not to be discovered. The townsfolk shook their heads and came to the conclusion that Ichabod had been carried off by the galloping Hessian. It is true an old farmer who had been down to New York on a visit several years after said that he saw Ichabod still alive. And Brown Bones, who shortly after his rival's disappearance married Katrina, was observed to look exceedingly knowing whenever the story of Ichabod was related, and always burst into a hearty laugh at the mention of the pumpkin, which led some to suspect that he maybe knew more about the matter than he chose to tell. But the old country wives maintain to this day that Ichabod was spirited away by supernatural means, and it is a favorite story often told about the neighborhood around the winter evening fire.
1: Nice. Perfect Halloween story. I still think it was Brom Bones and his crew of 'er (laughs) ne'er-do-wells. And you call me a skeptic. Max, I just followed the Disney cartoon canon that Brom Bones was a rapscallion of the First Order. Besides, we all know Ichabod Hightailed is out of town to start a new with some rich widow. Or so Walt Disney said. Exactly. Hey, so let's have one more spooky story before we sign off, shall we?
0: I'm all for it, amigo. In
1: Devonshire, there was once a young farmer who had spent far too much time at the fair in Whitecombe. Indeed, he had told his wife he would be home before dark, and it was already well past, for the moon hung high and bright in the sky. In addition to being late, the farmer had taken a liking to the nutty brown ale served at the fair, and happily guided his mare home along the muddy paths that led to his hamlet. Soon, a storm raged, seemingly from out of nowhere. Wind and rain lashed the trees around him and lightning danced across the sky. The farmer smiled the smile of the pleasantly inebriated and only pulled his hat down further over his head and soothed his horse as they kept plodding along the trail. Abruptly. The farmer and his horse were both surrounded by barking hounds. The dogs cavorted and yelped near his stirrups, looking up at him eagerly. The farmer pulled his hat up then, sensing another presence on the trail. There, clad in all black, astride a smoke-colored horse, sat a huntsman. The large, broad-brimmed hat the huntsman wore covered his face, leaving it in shadow. Slung across the huntsman's saddle were bodies of animals the farmer assumed. In his drunken, happy state, the farmer saluted the huntsman and cackled loudly. My lord huntsman, do me the favor of sharing your bounty. It will soothe my wife's temper if I come home with a nice brace of rabbits. The farmer couldn't tell for certain, but it seemed the hunter grinned under the large hat he wore. Then he shrugged and laughed harshly and tossed a parcel at the farmer, turned his horse around and galloped off into the storm, his hounds giving chase. Eager hands unwrapped the parcel and the farmer choked them and began to shake violently. The parcel had held the body of his small infant son, stiff and blue. Lightning blinded the farmer and when he looked again there was no package, only his two own trembling hands. Spurring his horse on, the farmer sped home as fast as the beast would carry him. There he found his wife wailing and holding the infant boy in her arms, stiff, blue, and dead.
0: Okay, so that's a merry tale to finish off this episode with. (laughs) Tis the season for tales of terror, Max. Okay, so who was the huntsman, in
1: your opinion? I mean, it had to be death, don't you think? I don't know. Europe has all sorts of
0: legends and myths that can come for you. Harbingers of doom galore. I agree. Harbingers of doom. Sounds like a future episode. Harbingers of doom. Agreed, Max.
1: We will do that down the line, y'all. Hold us to it. Good idea. And uh, that's going to do it for us tonight, lovely listeners. If we hurry, we can make it to the churchyard. Yeah, it's just best to be safe. Let's go and wrap it up. So, friends, thanks for spending time with Max and myself as we explore the history of this holiday we love here at Nightmares and Daydreams. Yes, as we said before, we couldn't do it without our amazing audience. And for those of you asking if we were ever going to get a Patreon page going, well, it's up and ready for your support. We'll have extra content soon. We'll have a couple of tiers to choose from. Go to patreon.com forward slash Nightmares Podcast to check it out, y'all. We love and appreciate
0: any support you can give us. And if y'all want to make a one-time donation, head on over to buymeacoffee.com and search Nightmares Podcast and buy us a cup or two. Rest assured, your donations and support will keep the podcast going strong.
1: And hit us up on all the socials, Facebook, the Gram, Twitter, all that. And head over to our own damn website at NightmaresPodcast.net and holler at you boys, why don't you? Like I always say, maybe be classy and pick up
0: some fun merch, and we'd love to hear from you. The best part in the business, Teresa Joy, gives us the amazing sound and music many of you have commented on. Find and follow her at Viobrite, that's at V-I-O-B-R-I-T-E, on Facebook and the Graham. Also, check out her own page at TeresaJoyMusic.com to listen to some of her music. It really is a pleasure to work with such an artist. As we say, she is so good. We're lucky to have her. Again, thanks for listening, folks. We
1: love you all. Max speaks true, y'all. Thanks for hanging around. And we do love you. So, as always, sweet dreams. dreams.